Hebrews 4. Why don't you stand with me as we read together God's Word? i got to give a little disclaimer before I read this. This is a difficult passage. I'm going to be like a tour guide today, and it's going to be unlike, you know, have you ever been at Walmart, for example, and you ask where something is, and they point, and then you wander, and you wander, and you go down every wrong aisle. That's me every time I'm at Walmart. I don't want to be that tour guide. I'm going to ask you to take my hand, and I'm going to slowly walk you through this passage over the next half hour or so, because if you get ahead of me, if you, if you seek to find the aisle on your own, there's a real good chance you'll go down the wrong one. This, let me just read it, and I think you'll understand what I mean. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, it didn't benefit them. And here's why. They weren't united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, well, we enter that rest. Just as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although it's strange he said that because his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4. He's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now in light of all that, since therefore it remains for some to enter this rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, and he said this through David so long afterward in the words that are already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll pierce to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Would you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help me make sense of this text. Father in heaven, it's surreal to stand here in the freedom and security of this congregation, openly proclaiming your word, all the while knowing that this is a grace not all are tasting. For our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine, for the citizens of that nation, we pray your mercy. We ask that you would stay the hand of the invading nation 
And we pray, O oh God, that your will would be done. So sober us by that very fact as we sit under your word. Remind us anew that this is a privilege. Would you pierce us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I'm tired. I didn't actually mean to yawn there. That was not intentional. <laughs> I'm proving my point. And as I'm looking around the room, some of you are yawning too. I, I trust I'm in good company. Ours is a tired world. There's a lot here today I trust that are probably physically, physically just tired. You ever find yourself where work is just such that it's all you can do to get home and be present for your family. Some of you have physical ailments that have so depleted you that you are of that statistic when doctors say the number one ailment they deal with in the doctor's office, my understanding is, is exhaustion. It's tired. Mentally tired. Stress. 69% of Individuals in the workforce report being overworked, just utterly mentally depleted. I bet there's a whole lot in this room who are emotionally spent. Anxiety is just sapping the life out of you. Depression seems unyielding. Consequently, we who are physically, mentally and emotionally tired end up coming into this room Lord's Day after Lord's Day just spiritually weary. You feel that? You sometimes get this gnawing sense that you're never going to measure up, you're never going to be able to fight the fight of faith, you want to come into God's house and be swept up in the glory that everybody else seems to be tasting, and yet you're just not, you're weary? If that's you, I want you to just hear me afresh. This won't be profound, I think, but just hear me. We, as Christians, have really good news for people like you and me. Our Savior... The Lord Jesus Christ, the sum and substance of the book of Hebrews. Jesus not only bore our sins, He bears our burdens. Jesus came not merely to redeem us, He came to give us rest. 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 Did you notice Ten times in this text, we see the word rest. Just take a deep breath with me and just let that word sink on you. Rest. What is this rest the author of Hebrews speaks of? What is this blessed rest that God promises you in Christ? I want you to chew with me for a moment on that word rest. It's multifaceted. It has several connotations. When you consider the word rest 
biblically, the word rest is referring in one sense to a rest from just the weariness that is life. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary, weak, heavy laden. And what does Jesus say? I will give you rest. This is a rest from worry, from the anxiety that is choking you. Isaiah 26 and verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. There is a peace, a rest God promises you from worry, from weariness. And biblically, you have a rest in Christ from work itself. Just Hebrews 4, verse 10, highlights for us that we have been promised a rest from work, just as God rested from His work. The longing of every human heart is for this rest. This is why Augustine, perhaps one of the most famous things he ever said, this famed father of church history, is that our hearts are restless until they find rest in Christ. Today I want to show you this rest. I want to draw your mind to this rest. Why? Because I believe it is the theme of this text. By the way, I don't get to choose the theme. An expository sermon, if it's anything, is this. The main point of the passage ends up being the main point of the sermon. I don't get to choose it. Rest is the theme of Hebrews 4. And I want to show you because if you take a deep breath, you're thinking, man, this is just going to be a life-giving sermon. But what's interesting about this passage is that Jesus, through the author of Hebrews, talks to us about rest, but he does so in the form of a warning. It's packaged as a warning. In Hebrews 4, the Lord basically warns us about resting in Christ. It's a warning to you in this room who are restless paralyzed by the fear of man, fear of government, fear of fill in the blank. This is a message for you who are wavering in your faith. How many of you today are congregating with God's people, but you're not committed to God's people? You know it. You know you're wavering. I, I bet there's a great many in here who find themselves drifting. This is a warning to we who are drifting, just going through the motions. And the word of Christ to you this day is that if you are not resting in Him, you may very well not be in Him. Let me put it positively. The theme of this text, I believe, is that all in Christ rest in Christ. Now, I want to guide you through this, but like the Walmart guide... I want to warn you, stay with me, stay close, because if you get ahead of me and think you know where this is going, you may very well fall into the trap that has snared a great many in the book of Hebrews, particularly in these so-called warning passages. You may be tempted to think, okay, well, 
So if I'm not resting in Christ, then maybe I lose my salvation. And I just want you to hold with me, hang with me. As I guide you through this, I want to show you three warnings in this passage that are going to form the three points of the text. It's the best way I knew how to chop this text up. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to slice and dice it. Three warnings. If you are marking in your Bible, I invite you to underscore these three verses. Notice in verse 1 and 2, there's the warning, let us fear. That's the first warning we see, and we're going to unpack what we should fear. In verse 11, there's another warning. Let us strive. We'll come back to what on earth that means. And then there's an implied warning at the very end of verse 13, where he warns that we will one day give an account. The three warnings for restless, wavering Drifting hearts, let's sit under these warnings and heed together the exhortation of this writer. Firstly, if you're taking notes, mark this down. If you are tempted to waver, drift, wander, you're restless, note this. Learn from the past. That's what the author starts with. He takes us back to the Old Testament. This is, of course, the New Testament. He takes us back to the Old Testament and he starts to teach us. You ever find yourself reading the Bible and you start in the Old Testament and you get lost real quickly? And you're, I mean, two-thirds of this book, two-thirds of it is the sordid tale of a small ancient Near Eastern nation called Israel. You, You read through it and it's so easy to get lost and wonder what on earth does this possibly have to say to me? So so many struggle with the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews, he could not disagree more. He sees the story of Israel as a cautionary tale, as a parable, you could say. He takes the story of Israel and he applies it to we this day and says, beware, learn from the past, don't be as those who don't pay attention to history and then are doomed to repeat it. You've heard that old adage. Pay attention to the past. There is something you can learn. Now, before I walk you through what we can learn from the past, let's come back up to speed and recall in brief the story of Israel. The Bible begins with God creating everything, as you well know. And at the pinnacle of His creation, He makes mankind. And what does He do on day seven? He rests. And there is no evening or morning on the seventh day. It is a continual rest It is a picture of the glory of paradise in Eden. We were made for eternal rest with God. Until Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, who are tasting the rest we long for, they screw it all up. They sin against Him. And the rest of the story of the Bible is of God picking up the pieces. God basically saying, I am going to save you from what you've done. I am going to bring you back to the rest I designed for you. And I'm going to do it in a particular way. Well, the Old Testament starts off kind of slow because things don't go well. The flood happens in chapter 6. God basically starts over. Then in chapter 10, he tells all those people to spread out over all the world. And instead of doing that, they come back together to the plain of Shinar where they build a tower up to God, maybe to try to prevent themselves from dying in another flood. Maybe they thought they could get above the waters. We're not sure. Nevertheless, they are building this tower and God says, I will make you obey me. 
and he spreads them out over all the world by confusing their languages. And that brings us to the 12th chapter of Genesis, where all God's people are spread over all the world, and he, out of his infinite grace, for no good reason except for his own inscrutable will, he comes and he chooses one man, an idolater, the one you wouldn't expect. He chooses a man named Abram of Ur, and he says, I am going to keep my promise to Adam and Eve through you and your family. There's going to come through your family somebody who's going to save you from your sins. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Abram's family. Abram, who becomes Abraham, he has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has several sons, one of which was Joseph, who gets sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery. They stay a long time down there in slavery. Finally, they get freed by Moses. And God says, at last, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to free you and send you to the land I promised your father Abraham many years ago. I'm bringing you to the rest I promised. And so off they go to the promised land. They part the Red Sea. They start wandering in the wilderness, but they don't get out of that wilderness. Why? Because the Bible says again and again and again that the people of Israel, while crossing the wilderness, stop trusting God. They don't believe him. They grumble, the Bible says. And God says, because of your lack of faith, because you didn't trust me, because you didn't believe me, I am going to keep you in this wilderness till you die off and a new generation arises. And then I will bring you to the promised land. This is the story that the author of Hebrews is picking up. Convoluted as it may appear to us this day as you're reading verses 1 through 8, you're thinking, I don't understand what train of thought this guy's following. Let me try to make sense of it for you. I, I see in this text three lessons we ought to learn from this parable of Israel's history. Three lessons from the past. The first lesson, which is quite clear in verses 1 and 2, is that, my friends, this is truth. There is such a thing as fake faith. Faith really can be fake. Notice, if you will, in verse 1. He says, while the promise still stands of entering his rest, fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to get here. Why? Because there were such a people named Israel, in verse 2, who heard the good news just like you. They saw God part the Red Sea. These people saw in a way you and I haven't. They heard the good news, but that good news did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith. The point is simply this. They did not believe as God has us believe. Let's just think for a minute about faith. Faith is more than mere words. It is more than, as Matthew 7.21 says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just claiming the name of Christ is not biblical faith. Faith is more than mere emotions. That's why James tells us that faith without works is dead. If faith is just a feeling that has no impact on your life and behavior, it's not real, the Bible says. Faith is more than belief. Why could I say that? Because the scripture is abundantly clear, as well in James, that even the demons believe. It says they shudder. What is faith? Faith, the word rest, I think is going to help us here. 
Faith is trusting, leaning on, I dare say, resting on the Lord. It is at last letting yourself just admit, I got nothing to offer. I am throwing myself on his mercy. I am being carried like an infant child. God, if you don't do something for me, I have no hope. My friends, the first lesson we ought to learn from the past as we consider our own walk with the Lord is that there is such a thing as faith, a fake faith. Faith can be fake. Another lesson we ought to draw from this text is that, well, in truth, we were made for this rest. We were made to rest in Christ. Look, if you will, at verses 3 and 4. He starts talking about the book of Genesis. Genesis 2, in fact, and verse 2 he's quoting when he says, You shall not enter my rest. My rest. What is the rest that belongs to God? God at the beginning designed that all paradise would be defined essentially by this word rest. We were made to totally, fully, finally, and completely depend on God. To rest in Him. That is a good picture of heaven. Heaven is resting in the Lord. Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfectly until everything got messed up. They sinned against him, and what happened immediately? Worry. Anxiety. They tried to hide from God. Instantly, the last thing they experienced was rest. There have been sleepless nights, so to speak, since that fateful day. And I want you to see in this text that God has promised to bring us back to this type of rest. And how? How does he bring us back to it? Does he say, work yourself back to it, and then once you've worked sufficiently, I will let you finally take a nap eternally? It's amazing. This is the grace of God, by the way. His means of bringing us back to the rest we were made for is in essence by resting. It's what we call faith. It's trusting, leaning on, depending, throwing yourself upon His mercy. My friends, faith can be fake. You were made to rest. And one final note I want to draw your attention to in verses 6, 7, and 8 is that time is short. Look, if you will, at verse 6. Since it remains for some of you guys to enter it, that's some of you in this very room who have not tasted God's rest, pay attention. Verse 7 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. He's quoting David in Psalm 95, and he is drawing our minds to a simple but profound truth that there is going to come a day when this promise of God's rest will expire. This is not an endless promise. There is eternal rest or eternal restlessness awaiting each of us. So the plea is urgent. Today, if you hear his voice, I could just go on and on from my own pastoral ministry. Endless illustrations begging you, pleading with you to see the urgency of now. That today, if you hear his voice, but I don't know that I need to. I think it's probably clear. Don't delay. Rest today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. My friends, learn from the past. Israel's 
story is a cautionary tale for us. You can be in the congregation of Christ and not enter his rest. You can be in the great throng. You can join our worship services week after week and not know him. So I plead with you that you would see if you want to enter Christ's rest, you can only do so by faith. Number one, learn from Israel's past. But secondly, the tone changes in verse 9, 10, and 11. For in these verses, he now shifts from the past to the present. Secondly, I want you to see we ought to trust in the present. Trust right now. Having studied Israel's history, he now says in verse 9, So then, so then, there remains for us this Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, strive to enter it. Now, that is confusing. Because if you are gospel-centered, you're thinking, what does he mean by strive? That word strive means diligently pursue, work hard. Now, that should knock you off kilter. Can I give you a principle for interpreting the Bible? Every time you come across a text that kind of knocks you off balance and you're not sure what to do with it, the best practice as you're losing balance is to grab hold of the immediate context. Scripture is its own best commentary. Just grab hold of what he just said right around it and you'll get stabilized. Just notice in verses 2 and 3, we've already addressed this, he is not suggesting that if you don't work really hard, if you don't strive with all your might to enter God's rest, you're going to lose your salvation. That is not what he's saying. Remember in verses 2 and 3, he just said that those people weren't saved to begin with. Those who did not enter God's rest, they didn't do so because they lacked faith. His point is clear. If you are in Christ... You will strive. Here's the way we talk. If you are in Christ, you will persevere. Let's say it another way. If you are in Christ, you are being slowly but surely changed into the image of Christ. Every time I have somebody from this dear church, come to my office for counseling on assurance of salvation, wondering, am I real, Kyler? Is, this, is my faith real? Here's what I never, ever say. Were you baptized? Never. When did you pray that prayer? I never say, as so many well-intentioned evangelists have, did you look inside your Bible for the date you made that decision? Now, why? I don't mean to be ugly, but here's why. Theologically, I can't. That would be pastoral malpractice because the Bible teaches quite clearly that the only assurance we have of salvation is if you are trusting Christ today. Here's what that actually means. Do not rest your assurance of salvation on something you've done in the past. Right now, before me, is Jesus your only hope? Are you trusting him? 
Because the assurance God gives you this day is that if you are trusting, weakly or feebly as it may be, if you are trusting Him this day, His precious promise is yours. He will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you from unrighteousness. He will make you to stand one day blameless before His presence with great joy. My friends, there are two indications in this text on how you and I can trust Him in the present. There's two gifts He's given us. On the one hand, we need to learn to trust His work. Look at verse 10. He says, For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from His work. Meaning, you're no longer trusting you have anything to do with your salvation. At that moment, you are fully, completely saying, God, I need you to do this because I got nothing to give. So let me just ask you a couple questions. Are you? Are you trusting Him? Not have you. Are you? Are you trusting that you are who He says you are? You are a sinner made in His image, designed for His glory. Are you trusting that right now? Are you trusting that Christ is who He says He is? That He is the Son of God? He is Savior and Lord? Are you trusting this moment that Christ did what He said He did? This moment. Are you trusting that Christ lived the life you never lived? That He died the death you deserved as punishment for your sin? Do you believe this moment that Christ mightily and triumphantly was resurrected from the dead to the glory of God and for your salvation? I'm asking, are you trusting that now? And here is the great grace of Christ. It's nothing more than just resting and saying, Kyler, I don't even know how to say it. I don't have the words to communicate it, but I'm trusting. I'm just throwing myself upon this and saying, Lord, do for me what I can't do for myself. The most intelligent and the most uninformed amongst us can alike rest, which is why my one-year-old child can rest just as well as the most senior saint in this room. My friends, we can rest. Trust Him. Are you trusting in His work? And if you're not, this is a gift God has given you. You need to go to His Word. Which is why I believe verse 12 is there. He says, for the Word of God, it's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of bones, body, and marrow. The, the, The imagery is simply this. The Word of God will reveal the real you. If you are wondering, I don't know, Kyler, if I am real. Is my faith fake like Israel of old? Or am am I genuine? I've been congregating here for years, but I don't know. Am I not amongst those who are committed? Am I in the great throng of God's people, but I will be barred from the promised land? Will I be as those who Jesus says infamously in Matthew 7, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Am I that? If you are struggling with assurance of salvation, go to the Word as Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says. It will pierce you. It will take down the facade. It will carve it away. It will reveal the real you. 
I was so encouraged just a moment ago before the service began, one of our members came up to me and said after walking with the Lord for decades, she finally read through the Bible during COVID from cover to cover and now sees other women she's friends with walking through her in the Bible from cover to cover. My friends, why is that worth the effort? Because the Word is living and active. It will show you who you are. It will show you who God is. And it will show you your great need for Him. Go to this book. Go to the Word. It will reveal the real you. But there is one final verse we've left on the table. And it's verse 13. Which takes us from the past to the present and forces us to reckon with the future. For verse 13 says, None of you, no creature, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. My friends, there is coming a day when you won't be able to hide any longer. There is a day coming where everything you've done will be exposed. You will stand before your Maker naked, as it were, utterly exposed. You cannot hide as Adam and Eve tried to. You will stand and everything you've seen, everything you've done will be exposed. The text you sent this week the, the visual you looked at last night, the thoughts you've had in this very room will stand exposed. And my friends, this is a harrowing, frightening prospect. Unless you believe in Jesus. Because the reason I can stand before you and not as an utter, complete hypocrite say, my friends, don't forget the future. Don't forget the future. Pay attention to what's coming. Don't forget this future. Don't forget it. The only reason I can say that to you, the only reason, is because there is going to be a day where I and I trust you will stand before Him. And though we will rightly stand naked and exposed, I will be, and I pray you too, will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. On that day, the blood of Jesus will cover me and I, who should be fallen to my face before the presence of His glory, will be made to stand, as Jude 24 says, now to Jesus, who alone is able to make me stand, blameless in His presence with great joy. We ought not forget the future because it is motivation for you and for me to remember that the gospel is actually good news. Amen. If you have drifted, if you have lost the joy of your salvation, if you are presently wavering and restless, you may need to print off Hebrews 4 and verse 13 and plaster it to your fridge, bathroom mirror, and remind yourself that there is a day coming when you will stand before Him naked and exposed. And that is not a bad thing because thanks to Jesus and Him alone, you will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it should make you at that moment fall to your face and say, Thank God 
for Jesus Christ. Today, if you are in him, you're Kyler. I, I have rested. I know what that's like. I've tasted of this rest. Jesus is my only hope. If that's you, the, the plea of this text to you this day is to just remind yourself. Learn yet again from the past. Just give yourself to the Old Testament and see the parable, the cautionary tale that is for you. Oh, would you give yourself to the past? My friends, would you presently trust Him? Persevere in the faith. Wield His Word. Trust in His work. Would you trust Him in the present? And don't forget what's coming. There is a future coming. Let it sober you and let it cause you to glory in the fact that the Gospel is good news. But for you here today who are wondering sincerely, I don't know if I've rested. I'm not sure that's me. You may very well be like the child swimming in the neighborhood pool. You ever been to the pool in the summer? It's so crowded. Hundreds of kids are splashing about. Nobody notices that that child who's splashing about beside your child isn't actually swimming. He's drowning. Have you all ever noticed that sometimes drowning looks a lot like swimming. There are many of you here today, I fear, who are drowning. You know it, but you're splashing about singing with the best of us. And my plea to you is that you would take hold of His everlasting arms who can bear you out. He will save you, redeem you, make you whole. He will grant you the rest you long for. And if that's you and you're still thinking, not today, one day maybe, but not today. I'm just not ready. I think I can save myself. I may look like I'm drowning, but I think I'm getting closer to the shore. My friends, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Would you join me as we pray? I'm going to ask God to seal this to my heart and to yours. Oh, I pray, Hickory Grove, that you would rest in him that you would throw yourself upon his mercy. He is a good, loving, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he and he alone can save you if you just throw yourself upon his mercy and rest in him. Father in heaven, do this, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and for the eternal good of my friends. Oh, I pray that you would grip those in this room who are facing eternal restlessness and remind them in a way I cannot by my mere words that there is eternal rest offered them. Prick, pierce hearts today to see that their restless heart will remain restless until it finds rest in you, Lord Jesus. So by the power of your spirit, pierce hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's respond as a congregation. Let's cry out to God and confess together our need for Him.